Hello and a very warm welcome to the gardening podcast that's for everyone who enjoys growing their own flowers, fruits and vegetables. I'm Dan. And I'm Julia. And together we're Two Good Gardeners. We're an all-inclusive podcast, so whether your garden is big or small, north or south, sunny or shady, we are here to share our gardening know-how and great ideas that you can try at home. We upload a new episode every fortnight packed with news, timely tips and the occasional interview with gardeners we admire. We know you're busy people, so we like to keep things short and sweet. Think of this podcast as a bento box of delicious goodies to be consumed with gusto. And now we've whetted your appetite, let's crack on with episode two of series two, sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Hello and welcome back to Two Good Gardeners. We hope your gardens have survived the wind and rain we've been experiencing over the last few days. I have to say my garden and my allotment are looking a little bit rough around the edges so there's going to be some propping up to do when the foliage has dried off. In this episode, we thought we'd do something a little bit different and that we'd chat more about our gardening journeys. Everybody's entry into gardening is different. Some are born gardeners and others find pleasure in their outdoor spaces after bringing up a family or when they retire. And we thought it'd be interesting to share our backstories. Yes, absolutely. And I guess, Dan, you and I don't fit into that bracket, do we? Which I guess makes us a little bit more interesting because I certainly didn't start as a child. I did a bit of growing, but I kind of fell into it via work. Yes. How was that then? Well, so I worked in a publishing company as a picture researcher and I went for a job for a gardening magazine and I obviously loved, I'm quite creative, I love gardens, but I didn't really think about it as a kind of profession. Anyway, blagged my way through thinking, oh yes, I know all these names, I know everything about gardening and got myself the position. When I started, it was quite clear that I should have known every single Latin name and I was having to ring up all the very serious photographers, you know, Jerry Harper, Andrew Lawson, and then Clive Nichols had started out at that stage. I mean, loads of loads of them. And I'd ring up and I'd say, oh, hello, it's so-and-so here from Successful Gardening Magazine. Do you have some images of blah, 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 blah? I mean, let's just say, for example, um, a Gisophila. But I was pronouncing it a, a way in, oh, Gypsophilia, or, you know, I was sort of learning on my feet. And by the end of it, they'd all go, oh, Julia, no, 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 this is how you pronounce it. And yes, I've got an image of that, blah, blah. And it became a bit of a standing joke. So I actually learnt my why would you call it gardening tech? I learnt a lot on my feet in that role as a picture researcher. <laughs> it was quite funny. But I must admit, my brain was like a sponge. It was my early 20s. And that's how I learnt them all. I think you've hit on something there as well, which is probably something that puts a lot of people off or, or makes them hesitant about getting into gardening, which is you know, what do you call a plant? What's the correct name? How do you pronounce it? it? It can make you feel a little bit silly, can't it? Definitely. I did feel really silly, but I have to say, you know, great testament to, to all those photographers who were actually very kind and very patient and they didn't make me feel silly by the end of it. And we just had a jolly good old laugh. <laughs> anyway, that's me. So I was sort of early 20s. But Dan, I know that you found gardening and horticulture so exciting when you were actually really quite young weren't you were you were you eight is that right 
Oh, I think I was even younger. There is a family legend, may I say, and it will not be challenged, apparently, but I am told my first ever word was mesembryanthemum. Now, I think... I think possibly that was just a misinterpretation of baby talk and I was, goodness knows what I was doing, but it it cannot be argued because according to my family, that is my first ever word. And I did have a soft spot for mesembryanthemums, which are these sort of funny little succulent plants that sort of have beautiful flowers that open in the bright sunlight. You don't see them very much now, but... um, They were one of the first seeds that I ever sowed and plants that I grew. But all of my earliest memories are plants and flowers. I don't remember people. I don't remember holidays. I just remember plants. I can walk around my parents' garden in Plymouth in my mind's eye and I can see every plant as clear as day, every detail of that garden is clear as day. So I must have been taking that in from from when I was, you know, very, very early. My mum used to devise these stories. I think, you know, noticing my interest in plants, she used to create bedtime stories around plants and flowers. And there was one particular one about um, crocuses and that there was, a, there was a white crocus and there was a purple crocus and there was a yellow crocus and they all flowered in a particular order in this story. But I, rem- you know, these are the things that I remember. I think obviously you just take so much in when you're that age. I can remember yeah. the smell of my dad's cedar lean-to greenhouse. And every time I smell a cedar greenhouse, it, it comes rushing back. I can see those carnations that, that like, what I, what do they call them now? Border carnations, you know, the ones people don't grow them now, but yeah. carnations that you grew in a greenhouse, the ones that you would have in your buttonhole, I can see those. I can see um, a climbing rose called Albertine, which used to be the bane of my mum's life. Oh, we had that. Yes, because it's a beautiful rose. It has... It is. quite informal, shell pink flowers, but my mum used to curse it because the dead flowers hold on and they look like sort of crispy brown paper and so you had to deadhead it because otherwise it looked like a complete steak and I, I remember all of these things so vividly so yeah I think I was I mean two or three I think you were born a horticulturalist yeah I was I, I think I probably was and of course my parents sort of leapt on it I mean not in a not in a pushy way but they certainly allowed me to be out in the garden a lot be outside a lot and just gently sort of fostered my love of gardening yes. really. but I, th- I think we were we were brought up in similar eras and I think we were outside a lot more I mean I, scent is evocative isn't it so the scent does bring back lots of memories so the cedar greenhouse but I mean my earliest memory is not actually growing something but it was visiting my grandmother's garden and also I should just say that very weirdly Dan and I were both brought up in Plymouth which is slightly mad isn't it that we didn't know each other and we live very close proximity to each other I am a little bit older we're not going to go into that but that is quite strange and I think the way what we lived as children then we did have free reign which is not the same these days is it 
But anyway, my earliest memory is going to my grandmother's garden and she grew Michaelmas daisies and they were taller than me. I mean, she oh. absolutely loved them. And the end of her garden had like a little allotment feel and we were allowed to go and help ourselves to the raspberries. And, and to me, that was fascinating. And whether that sunk in, she was a very creative lady and um, always well put together, very stylish and, and painted and had this beautiful country style garden. So yeah, maybe it sinks in and our sponge brains have just carried us through and now we've been able to find our passion and to turn our passion into a business so lucky us yes i mean we've both come at it from very circuitous routes haven't we so neither of us have just gone a straight line down the horticulture route and i don't suppose either of us would consider ourselves professionals in any way we're both we're both exactly as the podcast says we're two good gardeners we are amateur gardeners that love to share our knowledge of things but we've picked up bits as we've gone along haven't we yeah we have but you Dan you did consider horticulture didn't you at one point and then you you ended up being a buyer for John Lewis but so tell us about all of that well do you know I spent most of my teenage years battling other people's desire for me to do other things. So the school careers advisor informed me that I should be a fashion designer or an architect. And then when it came to going to university, there were a handful of us, I think, at my school that had potential to go to Oxford or Cambridge. And of course, they were very, very keen that we did. And of course, neither Oxford nor Cambridge did a degree that I was remotely interested in because I wanted to study plants. I wanted to study conservation. I was sort of very interested in ecology and conservation at that point, still am, but that was my thing at the time. And I remember the desperate attempts of the deputy head to try and find a course. He kept saying, well, they do land management at Cambridge. You could do that. And I was like, well, land management is basically sort of surveying. Sorry to any Mm. land managers out there, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. And it was it was actually very hard to convince the sort of not my parents for a moment, but it was very hard to convince the sort of academic people in my life that this was the right route to go down. In the end, I only applied to universities that uh, offered either horticulture or landscape management degrees. And I went to Reading in the end and did horticulture and landscape management. And very glad that I did. I, I think sometimes with degrees, it's more about doing something that you are prepared to really invest in and you're going to enjoy doing. And it's a lot about the sort of experience of university and you can kind of apply yourself to whatever afterwards. But I enjoyed doing that, and it opened my mind to lots of other aspects of horticulture I hadn't really thought about. And actually now, that's come to its fore, hasn't it, that you you have got some form of training, because with your knowledge now, and people come to you and ask advice as well, don't they? So I do revere you as the professional of the pair of us. I mean, I had to do the legwork of things like soil science and lawn maintenance and all of those sort of courses which I I wasn't particularly interested in at the the time. I have to say I find 
things like soil science much more fascinating now. But it, it gave me a grounding. It helped me to understand, you know, I often sort of go off on my little biological reasoning rants, don't I? But it gives you the basic understanding of how plants function and why they grow as they do and their likes and dislikes and how to get plants to grow. So it, it's a really uh, great thing to have, I guess, as a foundation. And of course, then both you and I have learnt through trial and error and yeah. and that is really how you get into gardening. It's yes. you can learn as much as you like, you can read books. Now of course you can look at YouTube videos and things which weren't around when I was learning. You can do all of that. But there is no substitute for actually just doing it. And and that is something that you are brilliant at. You just get out there and get stuck in. Where was your first garden, Julia? How did you go about setting out your first garden? Okay, so my first garden was a tiny courtyard in Wandsworth when we lived in London. And it had actually been been inspired by my visits from the gardening magazine to Chelsea Flower Show. So I hadn't really realised when I was very green behind the ears, rather than the fingers, aged 21, that I was able to go to press day, flaunt around, get all these lovely ideas. And I kind of put together... (laughs) so many ideas in this tiny tiny space we had a seating arbor built in a corner painted blue very homes and gardens at the time and country living we had a little barbecue area we had a pear tree i was getting the fruit and veg in already i saw mechanopsis at chelsea one year so i thought oh i can grow those beautiful tall blue himalayan poppies so i shipped in the mechanopsis of course they didn't survive in our courtyard garden in Wandsworth it was baking hot in the summer I had herringbone brick area I had a a butler's sink that I'd salvaged I did the herb um, bed I tried to make it look old with slapping yogurt on it I mean my brain was sort of literally spewing all these ideas out and I created it and I have to say oh I had a vine going down the side it was really good fun but I I did learn that you can cram an awful lot of interesting things into a small area and then I had things going up the wall because there wasn't enough space for beds or pots so I realized that you could do sort of like a sort of tiered section on the side return wall it was brilliant. In fact, Maria Marjoris came to do some photographing for one of the books I did. I mean, I don't know whether she remembers, but, you know, it, it, we just got such a lot out of it. And that was the first garden. But I learned, you know, I learned quite quickly that you can't just choose a plant for its colour. You have to look at the site, the location, your soil, etc., etc. So that was our first garden. I've got an image of it somewhere. It was photographed for a, a number of things, but yeah. <laughs> what about you? What was your well, what was your first garden, Dan? Well, our lives have had some extraordinary parallels because I was almost waiting for you to mention a blue painted something. And <laughs> my first garden in my first house that I bought had a blue bench in it. And of course I don't know. I think no. it was the fashion at the time. You had to have I think it was. paint everything blue. <laughs> Maybe I'm going to, it's Dermot Gavin or somebody like that, it's his fault. But my very first garden, I would have to say, is my parents' garden. And that is where I learned about gardening. So by the age of 14, my uh, birthday or Christmas wish list, I can't remember which one it was, but had a greenhouse on it. And I got a greenhouse. Wow. It was a plastic covered one. So it was a bit like a cross between a greenhouse and a polytunnel, but it certainly did the job. 
And I started growing plants from seed on an industrial scale because my parents' garden was very large and had a lot of beds and borders. And basically I could sow a full tray of seeds and grow them on and actually use them. And the garden was just a floral fantasy, I think, because I used to grow you know, petunias and dahlias and cosmos and all of the things that were sort of quite fashionable back then, I guess, in the late 80s and early 90s. Just because, did your parents, were they totally chilled and didn't mind you just sowing and growing and taking control or taking over the garden? Because my parents were much more controlled. No, not really. I mean, my dad was and still is very good at what I would call the labour side of gardening. So mowing the lawn, trimming the hedges, all of that sort of stuff, planting and all of that, but maybe not as interested in the artistic side of things. Very good at growing things. So I think it fitted quite well because I tended to do the sort of frilly stuff. Um deciding what to plant where and as I got sort of slightly uh, older towards my late teens then I really started to discover unusual plants which has become my thing. There was a brilliant nursery in Bath where we lived at the time called Hannay's and they were one of the first nurseries that I became aware of that were introducing really interesting perennial plants. I went on then to just to study perennial plants at university. I went to Germany and studied them there as well. So it it slowly became my thing. But I started with annuals and lashings of them. And I think that is, for many gardeners, the best way to start because it's very, very rewarding. You know, they're easy to grow. They want to grow. Yeah. Colourful, rewarding. If they don't come up, you've lost a couple of quid on a packet of seeds. It's low investment and high payback, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. But I gradually became a little bit more sophisticated in in what I liked, although I still love a petunia, so... (laughs) You do, you You still love all the (laughs) colour. So I was going to ask you, have you ever bought a totally unsuitable plant on a whim, a bit like my Mechanopsis that I bought? But I I mean, you, you have so many unusual plants. It's interesting that that started early on with you because I think your kind of jungle garden is full of unusual things and all your gingers that I've never heard of I mean ginger to me gonna grow it you're gonna eat it but I mean you have so many gorgeous ornamental ones so I just wondered what's the most unusual thing you've ever tried to grow or do grow oh I buy totally unsuitable plants all the time I mean literally (laughs) on a weekly basis at my very heart if I really sat and questioned myself I am more of a plantsman than a gardener I am inherently fascinated by plants and there's a part of me that doesn't really care if the plant doesn't live forever or even for that long so long as I've had that opportunity to observe that plant growing so I Mm. will often buy plants that I think in my heart of hearts I know that I can't really grow successfully just in order to be able to have some time with that plant in order to not tick it off a list, but to understand that plant and how it grows and what its requirements are. So, and and in a small garden, I think you can afford to do that a little bit because, you know, it's a small space, you're not going to be doing it a lot. But I do 
find plants the most interesting thing. And I think if you've stood back and looked at my garden really critically, it is a collection of plants more than it is a garden. But th that yeah. suits me. And gardens are massively personal things. So, yes, I buy deeply unsuitable plants all the time. They are mostly <laughs> plants that want um, lots and lots of sun and quite dry conditions. And my only salvation really is that we now have an allotment which yeah. has th those conditions and so some of those plants like the prairie plants that I'm rediscovering right at the moment they go to the allotment where they're a lot happier but they would last a few months in this garden because it's too cool and shady yeah well, it's so different to me we have lots of parallels but you are also the polar opposite really in terms of your plant preferences in that your happy place is very much your vegetable patch so how did that yeah. happen well so that's a good question really I think it happened a little bit in London because when I would go to the the Chelsea flower show I would always be drawn to the kitchen garden bits and really strangely I would always make my first port of call to a particular greenhouse stand which I absolutely love because they often had edibles in the greenhouse display beautifully. And here we are years later, I would go every year to it religiously. My mum would come with me, bless my mum, who's no longer with us, but she would be smiling down at this because here we are in 2023 and I've ended up working for that greenhouse stand because it was Alatex. I mean, the chances of that, I mean, so I think I have them to thank for the kitchen garden love. And then when I had a young family, I decided that they should try and have a go at growing and eating something tasty and being healthy. So I created, we'd moved again in Wandsworth and we had a bigger garden and I was able to create a courtyard bit at the end, which was all for edibles. So I planted rhubarb and peas and we have artichokes, really sort of quite easy things to grow from seeds so that my two girls could start to understand that it's quite easy to sow and grow. I mean, they were tiny, but just to start them off young. And then we moved again to where we are now in Sussex. And there was a part-walled garden with very little in it, crying out to be turned into a kitchen garden. So I was slightly shocked about leaving my urban life and not really knowing many people here. So I set about creating a little kitchen garden for us as a family. And I worked out quite quickly that I should really just grow things that we would eat. I didn't want a glut. And so slowly I would uh, have friends for lunch and I'd be producing homegrown salads and they'd be, oh, Julia, you know, have you really grown this? Well, how did you do it? And, and everybody around her, they were all finding that they'd come to sort of places with gardens that needed work or you could plant in. And slowly they would ask questions. And then the questions, like a sort of tirade or a torrent of questions whenever I'd see them. And eventually one of them said, actually, Julia, we're too embarrassed to ask you any more questions. So please, can we all pay you? And can we come? And can you tell us properly and I said well I'm sure I don't know any more than you and they said no no you do so I think I charged them a fiver each I was very embarrassed about it and they sat around in my sitting room and I did a kind of couple of hours of telling them what to sow and grow and that is how Parker's Patch started and that's how my workshops and and my true passion because I realized I found these things quite easy and, and really enjoyable like a hobby to do but they were really keen to learn. And the enjoyment I got from seeing someone's face, understanding and learning about how to grow something edible. 
my good, it was second to none. So that's how I started. Yes. And now, of course, a thriving business and a book to your name as well. A book to my name. Yes, Encouraging Children, the Little Girls Cookbook that I co-wrote with Gilly James. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, they do say everyone's got a book in them, don't they? Be it fiction or, or non-fiction. Yeah, it's been a journey, but I have loved doing it. And again, teaching the younger generation is my mission now, actually, to get everybody to grow something because it's not difficult. It, anyone can do it, as I've proved. Yes, and I mean, gardeners are very generous, aren't they? They like to share their knowledge. But one thing, you know, we discuss this quite a lot, don't we, Julia? You you have a lot of knowledge that you've gleaned over time and from your experience. And it's it's hard to put a value on that. Other people will put a value on it, but perhaps you don't see it yourself. I've got a really interesting scenario at the moment, and I hope she won't mind me mentioning it, but I do garden mentoring with people, which is basically to be someone's best gardening friend if they don't have one, and to hold their hand through their gardening journey. And I was approached by somebody in Hong Kong, of all places, to work with them and do some garden mentoring, and I wondered how this was going to work. But... Of course, Hong Kong is a place with very little gardening heritage and and not much of a horticultural culture. So to get into gardening somewhere like Hong Kong is quite hard because you don't have the Julia Parkers living next door that will (laughs) show you or tell you or give you advice on how to do things. And there aren't necessarily lots of gardening groups and horticultural societies there. So to learn to become a gardener in somewhere where there isn't this amazing heritage that we have in the UK is is quite hard. And actually, we're having the best time, I think. I've been to Hong Kong, but I never gardened in Hong Kong. So me learning more about the climate there and what plants will and won't grow. So we spent our last session talking about plant hardiness, for example, and how you know if a plant is hardy enough to grow where you live. But that relationship that you have with people telling them about gardening, you learn something as well because you learn what their situations are, which might be different to yours, and you eventually gather enough experience to be able to adapt what you know to other people's circumstances. So I've learned a lot, and, and I've enjoyed, of course, going back to my love of unusual plants. It's it's given me a chance to explore some of the plants that might grow in that climate as opposed to in ours here in Kent. Yeah, no, well, they do say gardening is a journey, don't they? And whatever the journey you're on, you and I are learning all the time. Likewise, with my one-to-ones, it's giving people confidence, isn't it, Dan, at the end of the day? Because I think that most of the people that I go and help in their veg gardens, they sort of know, but they're just not sure. And it's nice to have backup. And I think, you know, it's brilliant that somebody's found you from Hong Kong. Did they find you through your Dan Cooper garden business or did they just Google you? How did they find you? No, interestingly, it was through the Middle Sized Garden YouTube channel, which is brilliant if anyone's not discovered it yet. It's Alexandra Campbell. She does brilliant YouTube videos. And of course, she has a following from all around the world. And I happen to be a guest on one of her YouTube videos. And Mm. yes, I was found from there. So it's an ecosystem, this world of horticulture and gardening, when you get into it, because people find you through all sorts of different routes. So, Dan, who would you say has inspired you the most 
gardening wise is there a living gardener who inspires you now or is there someone historically who you've always thought gosh you know I've taken so much inspiration from that person I, I want a garden like him or her is there anyone there's a very very um long list I think <laughs> We haven't got time for a long list. (laughs) No, we haven't got time for the long list. So I think the very first person who piqued my interest, particularly in the tropical, jungly style of gardening, was a guy called Miles Chalice, who wrote a book about big exotic plants for urban spaces. That, That book looks really dated now, but of course at the time it was groundbreaking because people didn't really grow bananas in their little London backyards (laughs) and then along came Will Giles who had a garden in Norwich which was legendary and he really went to town with his exotic plants with colour I mean it was it was an extravaganza of um experimentation and exciting foliage and leaf forms and flowers and he grew things outside that people didn't think were possible and Mm. very high maintenance I think he inspired me greatly too Christopher Lloyd of course you know we have recently been to Great Dexter but his absolute passion for colour and slightly irreverent and unexpected mixtures of colour I think he really inspired me I had some really great lecturers when I was at university who went on to great things, but Richard Bisgrove was one of my tutors and he was a Gertrude Jekyll expert and I learned a lot from him about perhaps some of the more subtle elements of how to use colour in a garden and the way that she graded colours and her use of white for darker places or for showing up flowers in the evenings and things like that and the list is quite endless and I am looking for current people it's people like Jimmy Blake who again has that real spirit of adventure prepared yeah. to do crazy things try crazy things not too stiff about anything just adventurous I mean I think all in all I, I would like to be an adventurous gardener that's my thing how yeah, about no, you who, who are your well, influences well you've mentioned one of them so Gertrude Jekyll was probably one of my top actually I, I just love the way she gardens I love I, I just love the look of her borders and the beds and I also loved her tip <laughs> I'm sure everybody knows it but you know she would grow lilies in pots and if she had a gap she didn't think twice about just popping in the pot into the bed with the lilies to fill a space and I thought you know, it doesn't matter. It's just like a work in progress, isn't it? It's sort of creating a picture. So I kind of, I put her at the top and then I put Vita Sackville West too, just purely because Sissinghurst is such an amazing place to go and see. And the way she gardened, she broke through boundaries at an early stage and to have a white garden, to have different colours in different sections and so many gardens within a garden, I'd put her up there. And then uh, Pete Ordorff, because I thought I learned so much about looking at his style of prairie planting with u- the use of grasses. I felt he was slightly groundbreaking. And then I would then Fergus Garrett, obviously from Great Dixter now, but then Klaus Dalby. I don't know if everybody knows Klaus, but he's a Danish gardener. And I love him because he does everything in pots or nearly everything. And he creates a whole massive display 
and changes the seasons so brilliantly. He's got such a great eye. So I think I'd have to include Klaus too. <laughs> Lovely. Well, that is, I would have to say, a vintage collection of inspirations <laughs> there that I think anybody would be uh, foolish to ignore any of those names. So what about gardens? Because I know that you get out and about quite a lot looking at other veggie gardens, don't you? Which, which gardens inspire you the most? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I'm going to one, Grave Tie. I think Grave Tie, designed by William Robinson, is a hugely inspirational garden. Not only because it has beautiful beds and borders and pots and areas and and woodland and wilding areas, but it also has the most impeccable vegetable garden, which is an oval-shaped, totally walled, purpose-built, the turn of the century vegetable garden and it's hugely productive because they use it for the hotel and I absolutely love that but then also I love Great Dixter I mean I've always put Great Dixter at the top of one of my favourite gardens there are loads of others to mention I have a local garden town place Maggie and Barley they garden there it's a private garden it's also beautiful there's so much to take in so I think my list could be endless so I'm going to shut up now (laughs) so many (laughs) oh and the French gardens I mean Monet's garden Giverny I mean that's an incredible garden so yeah I'm not going to go on So Dan, my list is endless. I can imagine that your list could possibly be infinite too, but give us a few of your top favourite gardens. Well, I've been thinking hard about this and and actually every garden that comes to mind, it is far more about the atmosphere and experience of the garden than it is the garden itself and what is planted in it. There are some gardens I think I remember with a lot of nostalgia which I particularly treasure. I remember going to Hestercombe as a student and that's of course the Gertrude Jekyll and Edwin Lutyens combination and being quite blown away by the the sort of lovely details of that garden and that this was before all the recent restoration work was done to it. Mm. And and my first visits to many gardens sort of stick in my memory. But I am a West Country boy at heart. And I think almost every garden that would be in my list of gardens that sort of move me would be in the West Country. So all of those Cornish Valley gardens, whether it's Trebar or Trebert, never sure which one it is, Glen Durgan, Trengwainton is is such a favourite of mine just because the experience of being under those tree ferns with those venerable rhododendrons and the, the kind of moist atmosphere. There's something about the atmosphere of those gardens that just talks to me because that is, I feel mm. like that is where I am from. Yeah. But even, you know, extraordinary gardens. I mean, like Tresco is is an you know an experience in itself not not just the garden but the setting of the garden because you go to the top and look out over this sort of azure sea and white beaches and you can't quite believe that you're in the UK and of course that garden in particular with it pushing the boundaries always of what's hardy and what can take the wind and that maritime climate is is extraordinary to me I also just if I can have one more is just have this incredible memory of a garden called Overbeck's which is in Salkham. I know um, Overbeck's. Which 
I organised a university field trip for my cohort, I guess, and it was to Somerset and Devon to look at gardens. And we, and it's actually Overbeck's is or was a youth hostel, so yes. we stayed there. But I remember waking up on this dazzling summer morning with the with the sun twinkling on the water, looking out through these umbrella pines with these huge echiums coming up, and just thinking there is nowhere more beautiful on earth than where we are right now. And I haven't been to that garden again since but uh, that is indelibly imprinted on my mind just how remarkable that was the situation is lovely well maybe that should be our next year's summer outing dan maybe we should get the train and we should go down to devon and we should have an overbeck's whole day of breathing touching enjoying that garden Maybe we should do that. Too tempting, too tempting. (laughs) Okay, so I think you and I, obviously, we love chatting and we could talk about this about ourselves for quite a long time. But I feel that a good thing to talk about at the end of our episode is what advice would you give someone, Dan? Because we love trying to teach people and help people. But what would you give someone if they were just about to get into gardening and they're a little bit nervous, they'd never grown anything before, certainly not from seed, What's the thing that you would tell them to do? What's your bit of sage advice? Well, I think there's no better advice than to just get stuck in. (laughs) My caveat to that would be do not scare yourself witless because I see it time and time again where people think, okay, this is my time now to get stuck into gardening. You know, I've got a bit more time on my hands, maybe my kids have have left home or got a bit older which is what's happening to my friends now but then they try and do too much they try and do it all at once and of course it becomes overwhelming and then people recoil in horror at just how overwhelming it is so get stuck in but don't bite off more than you can chew is what I would say and go a little bit steady I think the other thing as well to remember is gardening, everybody has failures. You know, it's like our friend Instagram. You know, Instagram, we only generally see what goes well for people on there. That is not reality. These people Mm. with splendiferous gardens, I mean, we're just recording this at a point where the country has been laid flat by (laughs) gales and heavy rain, aren't we? And I bet we won't see many pictures of that appearing on Instagram. Just remember that every great gardener has their failures. The photograph that I keep on my phone, and this is no word of a lie, is an area in the South Cottage, I think it is, at Sissinghurst, which is Vita Sackville West's sort of bin where all the plant failures went. And I think they listed them or something, but basically it's it's pointed out and it was basically where the dead plants went. And, you know, if Vita Sackville West had plant failures, things yeah. that didn't grow or things that failed, then that's going to count double for the rest of us. So Yeah, so it's OK. Do not be put off by things that don't work. <laughs> How about you? Well, I think I would say try sowing something from seed. Don't be scared of seeds because they're inexpensive. You get loads in a packet. And if something doesn't work, it's not necessarily you. You can just sow a few more. So try, try again. And the other thing that I think I'd say is that a lot of people, when they're new to gardening, want the instant 
gardening effect. And it's prudent not to buy the large shrubs, the large plants, the large perennials. Always go for the smaller plant that's for sale because if it's smaller it's got a chance to put down some really good strong roots and it'll settle in to its new home a lot faster and I know people are impatient so have some patience and buy a smaller plant the big ones might look magnificent they'll cost you an arm and a leg but they could also have a bigger chance of failing because you're disturbing a big established root by transplanting it so always go for the smaller plant and I think be patient and the rewards will come true. Sage advice. And of course, also coming up to the season where you can buy bare-rooted plants as well, which are yes. great to value and will save you a few bob and will probably grow away a lot better. While you yeah. were talking about that, I found, because I did tell you that I kept it on my phone, I found oh, the found actual it. photograph. And it's a <laughs> chalkboard sign and it says, in this room stood the box of the dead an old tomato box containing the labels and tags of plants which had died. So that's what they did. They saved the labels of the plants that died. And I probably might even maybe do that a bit too. That's, so, yeah, uh, that's good. <laughs> so there we go. There we go. So that's in a nutshell. That Those are our stories. That's how, how we got into it. It's been fun to share, hasn't it? Oh, it really has. And I, and I hope that between us, we have inspired any of you that have been a little bit nervous that may be happy to listen and to read and to watch television shows about gardening but that we have proved that you can come to it at any stage it's hugely enjoyable it's not that difficult just requires a little bit of patience and try and come on the fun gardening journey with us and it doesn't matter I mean I love my edibles but you can grow anything and sit back and you could admire what you've grown and hopefully we can give you a bit of confidence to just go on have a go it, it's not hard it's it's good fun and, and as Dan said earlier the gardening community everybody's happy to share something to share seeds to split a plant we're generally really nice people, so we're a good club to join. <laughs> well said. <laughs> now, before we go, we like to share what we're going to be up to in the next couple of weeks before the next episode comes out. So, Julia, do you want to tell us what you're up to and what Alatex yes. have got planned? So, I am up to workshops, which I've mentioned before. So, it's it's autumnal sewing workshop season for me. So, it'll be one at home on the 7th of October and then a children's workshop the week after Alatex are having an open morning on the 7th of October. It's in the morning, 9 until 1 at their head office, which is near Petersfield. They have all their different greenhouses open for you to wander around, to discuss with people on site. And even if you've not really thought about a greenhouse, it's a fun morning to go and look at them. And I can guarantee you'll be so inspired. <laughs> so Dan, I know you're busy and I know you're always busy every weekend. So where are you going to be and what are you up to? Well, my big event is my most local event, which is the Broadstairs Food Festival. It is one of my favourite things in the calendar here. It really marks the end of the sort of summer season here, I feel. So everybody comes out for it. It's a celebration of food. And I fit in because I sell lots of things that to do with growing your own food. I hang in there tentatively. But the best thing about it for us is that it is just 
next five minutes down the road and so we we try and be very environmentally friendly and wheel our wares down to the seafront for it but it is on the 29th and 30th of September and the 1st of October and I think it's generally open 10 until 6 each of those days and yes if you love your food you will absolutely love it there's lots of food that you can eat there and then and there's lots of food you can buy to take away so that's what I'm going to be doing and after those three days I mean even when I go as a punter I need a, a day off afterward to digest everything but <laughs> we're actually going to have a few days off after that to recharge our batteries and get ready for the Christmas season there you are I've said Goodness it the me. Christmas season is coming and I need a little bit of R&R I think so that I am full of ho 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 for the next few months <laughs> Well, I think that's very wise, Dan. And I think, you know, I love the fact that you're taking your show on the road, but you've not really hit the road for the Broadstairs Food Festival. So I think that's a win-win. And and you can digest some delicious food that you have bought there, as well as everything that you've seen and are tempted with. So enjoy your few days off. So I think that's all for this unusual episode about us, but we thought you might enjoy that. So it just remains for me to say goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. You've been listening to the Two Good Gardeners podcast with Dan Cooper and Julia Parker. Sponsored by Anatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then why not click follow on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss out. Leaving a rating or writing a review will help us reach other gardening enthusiasts like you. We'll return here with a freshly prepared smorgasbord of delights in a fortnight. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at DanCooperGarden and at Parkers underscore Patch and at Two Good Gardeners for more on this podcast. Or you can visit our websites. You'll find the addresses in the show notes. If you've got any questions for either of us and want to know more about how we found our way into gardening, you can email them to hello at dancoopergarden.com. Until the next time, happy gardening!